Welcome to another edition of Garden Talk. Hi, Larry Mueller here. Great to have you along today as we talk with Liz Freemuth, who provides concierge horticultural services through her business. It's called The Garden Hole. She's been thinking about uh, plants that have a high tolerance for extreme conditions, and she has some suggestions for you and for me, and I hope you'll join in as we move along today. Do you need some advice for a hardy plant? If you have a gardening question, join in. Give us a call at 800-642-1234. It's 1-800-642-1234 or email to ideas at WPR.org. Ideas at WPR.org. Liz Freemuth, welcome back. Good to have you with us. Oh, so good to be here, Larry. Always a pleasure. We're talking, you mentioned tolerant plants. and when we're What kinds of conditions are you thinking of in this... Oh, what have we had this year? <laughs> <laughs> what haven't we had? We, we've well, had? we haven't had a lot of rain. <laughs> right. <laughs> other, other than when we did, it hit really, really hard. Yeah. And so, you know, you've got flooding issues, heat issues. Um, and let's be really honest. When it's hot outside, we as gardeners, we don't want to go outside and take care of them. So we also have the human condition that makes us look for tolerant plants and so one of the things when I'm looking at what kind of tolerance level do we need is what kind of care does it get you know mm-hmm. do, is it an ignored plant if it is that's a whole nother level of tolerance but there's <clears throat> excuse me so many wonderful natives out there and the breeding work that's been done on the natives you know they call those native ours I'm sure people are aware of that but um, breeding that will actually strengthen the structures, improve the flowering on native plants that are really indigenous-ish mm-hmm. to our area. So that helps in that tolerance. If you start looking for plants that are that normally grow well here and then get something with a little bit added boost in the breeding line, that makes for a really happy plant for gardeners. Yeah, and so the heat-tolerant plants, as we're thinking about it, yeah, let's take perennials. Uh, yep. Favorite heat tolerant perennials. Well, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, let's take a look at what does really, really well for summer. And right now, if you're driving around, you might be seeing these massive big blooms, hibiscus, the yeah. um, mosquitoes. Those are absolutely fantastic for heat tolerance, for water tolerance. They will tolerate periodic flooding and in fact if you go down to ball seed trial garden in illinois they actually have them growing in water in standing water and so they are a lot more tolerant than we give them credit for and they love the heat and they come back every year and um walters it, walters gardens are doing great job on breeding on those getting stronger shorter more suburban-ish friendly Mm -hmm. plants that are not going to be rangy tall and out of control so that one is a good one i like that one because it loves the heat it tolerates just about everything now with any of these i want to preface this with when we're talking about tolerant plants this is after they're established so you can't go and get a plant when it's 90 degrees out pop it in the ground don't do anything with it and expect it to be tolerant no that's not that is not going to happen so you do need to provide some care to actually get it growing get the roots started you know for two three years at least 
on a perennial, make sure it's well-established. Um, so I like those. I also like at this time of the year, Vernonia is starting to make its it, their heads known. They've been strong growers all season. They've done really, really well. Those flower late in the season. And there's a great cultivar out there called Summer Swan Song, if I remember that properly. And I will make sure I send the list out to you so you can post it okay, um, on the website. But the Summer's Swan Song is a shorter stature Vernonia because Vernonia in its natural form is, it can get to be six feet high and a little bit tall ranging. Now the Summer Swan Song is going to be knee to thigh high, very well-rounded mm. form. Um, I like Hellenium. That also is a very good heat plant, and that's another one that will tolerate periodic drought, um, drought and then flooding, and it's starting to flower right now also. Um, the cone flowers always do really well depending on when you plant them. Um, if you're out there shopping because right now everything is in full bloom and you go and you buy a cone flower, especially one that's got a little bit of red or salmon in the breeding, that you want to make sure that after the ground freezes solid that you mulch it well because they're slow to root. So mm. if you're buying and putting them in, make sure they get water and then mulch them after freeze so we don't get any bed and breakfast for the rodents and then they usually do very well then and then the second year you won't have to mulch them but they're just very very slow rooters uh the garden mums always you know take your pick on what they're going to be called at this point check out um check out the websites that will tell you the proper scientific names but most of us commonly if it's a mum type plant and as long as they're hardy they do very, very well in the heat also. And in fact, they hate having wet crowns. And so the heat, as long as the roots are developed, they will do absolutely beautifully for you for summer. Um, what else do I like? Salvias. The salvias, yeah. the profusion series is absolutely wonderful. Um, and, you know, I'm going to flip over. I brought cheat sheets because I'm not going to – I'm old now, and I don't remember all the names like I used to. Well, I've been old for a while, but I'm actually admitting my age at this point. Um, but they're, they are really, really good in that they rebloom. And mm. a lot of the salvias, you cut them back and they kind of sporadically bloom. These will actually come back very, very well. Another good summer flowering that tolerates the heat is the nepeta. You know, the Nepeta cat mint, um, those do really, really well. And a kind of good standards for Nepeta are going to be Walker's Low. There is Joanna Reed, Six Hills Giant. Uh, those are all great. And the beautiful thing about the Nepetas and also the Hellenium, the Vernonia, the Mums, those you can cut back like you do them like you know we know to do for the moms yeah cut them back before the fourth of july for us on the southern part a little bit earlier as you get further north and that will shorten the height get it to branch out a little bit and you still get flowers so all of those will do really really well with that with the nepeta if you wait until right after it flowers and not even when they're done but just mm -hmm. as they're getting to the end of their yeah. pretty point Cut them back to about a third of the height, and in six weeks, you'll have new blooms. So it's one of those things where you start looking raggy. Just get your hedge clippers out there and get out there and be mean and take off whatever you can. Same thing for geraniums, the um, hardy geraniums. Brookside, and then there's one called 
Blue Cloud, I believe. And those are really good at reflowering after you cut them off. And you'll notice when there's, again, they're starting to look rangy and the stems are falling over. You just gather all of those up, give them a whack, and you will be amazed at what pops out um, from the new growth. So that's just a little bit of the summer type plants. Um, another one that I can't not mention is the Calamintha. And White Cloud is great. There's a bunch of different ones out there. And those will flower from June all the way through a couple of hard frosts. And they're in the mint family. They're a little bit more upright. And mm -hmm. they're not, they do not spread uncontrollably. They just get a nice mass to them. And the bees love them. So you've got good pollinators kind of hanging around. And they just perform and perform and perform. You can't ask for anything more than that. Love the heat. Love the heat. Love you know, the heat. You know, in my neighborhood, um, one of the plants that I've noticed that has done very well uh, is uh, lavender. Yeah, this year it's been fabulous. Oh, what a year for lavender. Yeah. Well, when you think about it, that's a Mediterranean plant. Mm -hmm. And, the you know, you're talking about heat, higher pH. We have high pH around here. And the real killer for those is a wet crown during winter. Yeah, they ah. do not like that. And so the heat this year has been absolutely fantastic. A couple of really wonderful um, lavenders out there. I know people down by me have good luck with Munstead. I'm kind of iffy on that. The woman that I know grows it like a, she's a wizard with it. Um, it does really, really well for her. Now, I have good luck with Phenomenal. And then also sensational. I've been having really good luck. But with a lot of these high-performing lavenders, you may only get two, three, four years out of them. So expect them to be kind of a short-lived perennial unless you've got perfect conditions. I must admit on the air that occasionally as I run by in the morning, <laughs> on my, I might pinch off just a little, a small little piece and rub it between my fingers mm. and then smell. And it's... Lovely. <laughs> keeps you, it keeps you going, doesn't it? It just, it, there is something about the sense of the garden that no. it just really motivates me. And that's just because I was raised in gardens. You know, it may not, may not do the same for others. For you, it probably gives you that extra added boost to get, to get finished with the run. To get my miles in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Susan in Appleton has a question for you. Let's go there. Hi, Susan. Good morning. I have actually two questions, if I may. The first question is, I put in a new cherry tree, and it got hit pretty hard with Japanese beetles. And Which, the second uh, question is, Susan, first, was, I didn't get that. the name of the tree. It's a cherry tree. Cherry, oh, cherry tree. Gotcha. Okay. Yep. And the second question is, I want to overseed my lawn this, for the winter, and I'm wondering what's the best process for doing that. Oh, you're talking to a non-grass person. Um, I do. We, go ahead. I, I could say we 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 could uh, address the cherry tree question yep. better, but I wanted to tell you, Susan, if I just did a show on lawn care, and you can go to ideas at wpr.org/larry, and a week or I think it was a week ago. It might have been two weeks, but we dealt with that whole business of seeding in the fall. So are overseeding. So I would recommend you take a look at that. Yeah. The cherry tree and the Japanese beetles. Mm. And you're in Appleton, right? Yeah, she's in Appleton. Is is this a cherry tree that's ornamental, or 
are you raising it for the cherries? It's a fruit-bearing tree. Okay. Okay, you're really kind of stuck. I hate to tell you that. Um, because about the only thing, the only things that work well on Japanese beetles are going to be a little bit longer acting if you want to do a systemic. You can probably do a contact spray with a seven or something like that, but that's going to have really limited effectiveness, so it's not going to get through that entire season of Japanese beetle damage. So that's going to be a little bit, um, it's going to be a little bit difficult to actually control, well, it is anyway with Japanese yeah. beetles, you know, it's, it's terrible. And anything in that rose family and the fruit trees, they absolutely love. On the upside, you can't, there is an organic product out there that is, I'm not going to remember what the name of it is, but it's kaolin clay and it has a little bit of surfactant in it. You do have to apply it regularly. It does, it's not a killer, but what it does is it covers the tree when it's sprayed on with a layer of dust. The, the tree is going to look like it was frosted and that's how it should look. And what it will do is it will just provide a bit of a barrier so that Japanese beetle won't have a real easy time of getting to the fruit, the leaves, etc. And that's really, you know, there you, you have to wash the fruit if you actually get some fruit off of it. But you have to keep that product on. You can't just put it on once and then say, I'm done. As soon as it starts to wash a little bit, it's going to have to be reapplied. On the upside, um, with Japanese beetles, I don't know where you guys are at in the life cycle, but you do see a build, 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 and then they'll level off, and then the populations will decline. But you, we typically don't see them go away. I, we're not that lucky. And as far as putting the traps out, the hormone traps, if you do that, buy them for your neighbors on the other side of the block, because mm -hmm. that does attract more Japanese beetles in. And so... Uh, you don't want to put those those pheromone traps out and bring more into your yard than would already be there. The good news is that they do tend to level out yep. over time. And like here in Madison now, we don't have any, I don't have anywhere near the problems right. I had five years ago. Yeah, and for us down in the south part of the state, it hit about 20 years ago. And we saw horrible damage for about five to six years. And then it leveled off in year seven and then it declined. And so you do see damage and every once in a while you get a little bump up in the population, but not as bad as it was. So, you know, fingers crossed that's what that's what you'll get up there. And again, for the lawns, go to ideas at WPR.org slash Larry. And I think look to last last Friday, I think, is when we <laughs> talked about lawns. And, and there's a lot of information right off the bat in, in that, sh in that, uh, in that uh, recording. So there you go, Susan. Thank you so much for calling. Appreciate it. Liz Freemuth, our guest today, who provides concierge horticultural services through her business, The Garden Hole. And Clara Nipertz, our on-air producer. Jill Nadoza, our producer. And Tyler Ditter, our engineer. I'm Larry Mueller for Garden Talk on the Ideas Network. Great to have you with us for this edition of Garden Talk. Larry Mueller here with Liz Freemuth of the Garden Hoe, and we're talking about, well, we've talked about hardy, tolerant plants, plants that will survive all the different kinds of conditions that we've been getting and probably are going to be continuing to get for a, a long time to come. And, uh, of course, so you can, questions about that, please join in. But if you have other gardening questions, 
uh, Liz can certainly take a, uh, a look at those as well, for sure. Uh, the number to call, 800-642-1234. Email to ideas at wpr.org. Uh, Donna in Eau Claire emailed, she enjoys gathering the elderberries along road ditches, and she's often wondered if vehicle exhaust would affect the berries or cause harm to somebody who eats them, like her. What are your thoughts? Well, anytime you have a plant that's outside, it's going to get something on it that's floating in the air. Um, if you wash it, and, you know, you're, you're talking about very, very tiny berries, but they're also in clusters. So you can actually wash them and, and get, get some of that exterior gunk off of them. I wouldn't pick near a really busy highway that sees a lot of diesel because yeah. that's just harder to get off of the fruit. But I have not seen studies that say you should not pick anything. Um, it comes down to a food safety issue and what you do with that once you get it home. Uh, and elderberries have to be cooked anyway. And so you are going to get some of, some of that out just by raising the temperature while the berries are cooked. Should you be concerned? Not really, but you should be cautious. Yeah. Be you know, cautious. Yeah, be cautious. And, you know, maybe if you are really concerned, if someone out there is really concerned about that, then identify the landowners because if there's elderberry bushes one in one place, more than likely they have them elsewhere because the growing conditions are right. So maybe approach them and say, can I pick elderberries from you or any kind of berries that's off the easement? And most are willing to share. Ray in Whitefish Bay emailed us. They also sent a picture. He, he just noticed these growths on his white oak tree. But as we, <laughs> I looked at that, I said, that's not a white oak. That's a red oak. Red oak, yep. Uh, some, t uh, some holes, but there are some um, bumps that are really mm -hmm. galls, are they not? They are. And for the most part, we don't have to worry about gall damage on trees. Unless it's absolutely, absolutely horrible and defoliating the tree. The leaf picture that he sent, the leaf actually looks really quite healthy, other than a couple of holes. And depending on who you're talking to, those holes and the galls on there really indicate a healthy insect environment, that you have bugs that are feeding, but they're not feeding so heavily that they're creating stress for the tree. And so to me that says, well, you probably have a pretty good environment there. And for red oak in in the kind of heat and inconsistent conditions that we have, it's looking pretty good. Yeah, I, w I wouldn't worry about it. Let's go to Lois in uh, Chippewa Falls. Hi, Lois. Hi there. Um, a couple of weeks ago, my sister and I found a mother load of elderberries and we're in elderberry heaven when some guys came along with their ATV and said we had to get out of there because they're, they're going to kill all the plants and spray all the plants, mm. So, which is tragic. But also, how, how long do you think it takes for it to show that they've sprayed those elderberries? Not I mean, long. Kind of a not long? Oh, good. Because yeah. <laughs> I, I know that uh, there was someone there before us who... Um, you know, had apparently um, had combed some elderberries off. So I thought, oh, my gosh, if they do that, they're going to get sick, you know. Mm -hmm. so, okay. You can see it fairly quickly, especially if they are intending to kill it. They will use something that is going to start showing the effects of spraying 
within a few days, if not that day. You'll see some either um, leaf disfiguring, some discoloration, some browning, etc. More than likely, they're going to use a brush killer on that, which is pretty fast at showing the results of of the spraying. Um, but, you know, that's one of those things where you're looking at being cautious with, because unless you know the landowners and you know what they're doing, you may go in the day after they spray and then you would not know. So that is, uh, that's, I always approach a landowner. I go knock on the door and say, hey, do you mind if I pick a little of this? Even though it's in the road easement, they still pay the taxes on that. So, you know, it is it is their land. And it's just polite to say, can I? And you never, yeah. you never know what other trove of berries you may find after you befriend somebody who has them. But you're right to be cautious with that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for calling, Lois. Uh, let's go to Joseph in Madison. Hi, Joseph. Yeah, I have a large red oak tree in my backyard. I believe it's a red oak, the one with the very dark leaves. Uh, what do the wee leaves look like? Are they kind of sharp and pointy? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah yep. probably a red oak. Sharp and pointy and large large leaves. Um, when is the best time for me to um, to kind of trim it or prune it back? I've got some branches that are hanging down pretty low and I wanted to take some of that off. What would you recommend? Don't do it now. Um, what you're looking at with oak trees is not until the insect activity has really gone away for the year. It used to be that we would say April to September. Now it's March to October mm -hmm. and sometimes a little beyond that point where you don't want to prune. And the reason is that a red oak especially, anything in that family, is a little bit more susceptible to dying from oak wilt if, um, if that pathogen finds its way into that, that tissue. And the insects that can carry it on their bodies are active during our growing season. The only time I would say you trim during that period would be if there's storm damage. And if you do that, then you prune, or if you have somebody else come in and prune, Make sure that they are covering that with a good, um, you can really use thinned out white latex paint for that, but you want to cover over that fresh cut immediately because they've tracked the insects and it takes them not long at all to find that Minutes. fresh, yes. And I, I honestly, it boggles the mind that they can track these little buggers, but they do. And so really you want to be very, very careful. You don't want to introduce a disease into a, into a healthy tree. So look at winter during dormant season just to be on the safe side. And to do that, you pick a nice, cool, dry day so that that tissue heals over very, very quickly. When you're outside of that active insect period, then you don't need to paint over with anything to cover the tissue. Yeah, you don't want to. No, you don't want to. You no. don't want to. I was thinking back to a story that somebody told me on this show, it must be 10 years back at least, of an area where um, a non-certified trimmer went into uh, a, a lake home and there, there were oaks all along the shoreline and he pruned in July mm. and the oak wilt spread right, right down. Mm -hmm. You can imagine these mature oak trees 
What a shame. Something, I don't know if it was 50 or 60 of them on several different properties, the lawsuits mm-hmm. and, the, and, of course, the death of the trees. Right, right. Oh, my goodness. Uh, well, and, uh, years ago, this would have been maybe 25 years ago or so, um, Jane Cummings Carlson worked at the at the state and was doing research on this. And um, it is amazing how fast it will spread through the trees because trees of a like age will interconnect the oak trees. The roots will interconnect underground. And yeah. so it will go from one to the other so quickly that it makes your head spin. So, yeah, you want to be be a bit cautious. Pete in Reedsburg emailed us uh, more of a comment than a question, and he was talking about the aforementioned Nepeta or Nepeta? Nepeta, yeah, Walker's Low. He says a great plant for a variety of reasons, but for him it has a kind of fatal flaw because it flops. Every single year it flops. He's taking his out this fall because he's tired of big shrub-like perennials that become giant donuts every June. <laughs> well, it, you know, that is, <laughs> I, I will agree with him 100%, but what I have learned to do is to go in and prune those back in the spring, in late spring. So they start to come up, they get to be about <clears throat> 10 inches. I'm okay with missing that first flower unless myself or a client needs the flower in the yard for an event or something like that yeah but as soon as that starts to flop cut that off and it will regrow beautifully so you're not stuck with the donut unless you think you're stuck with the donut and so just gather those up get a hedge clipper out there cut them off to a third of the height that that's there and you'll be much happier with it much happier i mean they do have very short cultivars now that are compact but if you have one already why not give it one more year and see what's going to happen so he'd nail them now now would he cut them down now um we're a little bit late Too in late. the season yeah. yeah um and what i worry about because we never know what the fall is going to do so yeah you can cut them off it's not going to hurt them but if you do get quite a bit of growth if we've got a long fall you might actually get some new growth on there that then will get really hmm. kind of zapped by the cold and the wet that comes. It doesn't have the tissue, it may not develop the tissue hard enough to withstand that. So I would say, you know, you can take you can take the, the top third or half of it off easily, and, it, and it'll be fine. You do want a little bit of protection from the snow cover for those. So leaving a bit of that plant through the winter is a good idea. But you know, that's every gardener has their tipping point, and this might be his tipping point where he's done, done, done. But you know, you might want to try changing your practices just a pinch and see if you can't be happy with what with what's there. Yeah, not a bad idea. I, I like that idea. One more year of experimenting, Pete. Right. Well, and you know, this year is so tough that I'm not recommending that anybody say, "Look, it's dead. I'm I'm pulling it out." As plants continue to surprise me every single year so we say it's done it just went dormant because it's too darn hot you know like us we stayed inside it goes underground so give it until next june july you might want to plan over winter for okay if this died what do i want to get in its place what's going to be a happier plant and that's a good project to do over winter ripping everything out in the fall not so much things might come up next year Laura from Menominee Falls emailed us. They have a birch tree with, that has branches overhanging the driveway, and 
Birch has a they know perch, birch has a, a certain time of year to prune or when it's mm-hmm. better to prune. They love this birch tree and they don't want to harm it. So <laughs> it birch actually do well when you prune them during the growing season. That's one of the oddball ones. And so you can get out there and prune that off now. Do not be surprised if it weeps sap, it will do that and also what may happen is you'll get sometimes if conditions are right you'll get something that looks like um, chewed bubblegum ooze coming out of the cuts. <laughs> Do not worry. It's it's okay. It is okay. That just happens. I had a birch tree once that had bronze birch borer and mm-hmm. birch leaf miner. Oh, you had it all, didn't you? Did you end up cutting that one down or, or did you treat treated <laughs> and did it did it do okay yeah yeah you catch them early enough and what you look for in the birch tree is um top down outside in death and if you catch it early enough sometimes it's just trim off and you and you've caught it you can treat it and and catch it so yeah good job Liz Remeth, our guest, uh, her business, The Garden Hoe, and we're talking with her about um, hardy tolerant plants, but taking, obviously, a, a broad range of questions relating to to the flowers and, and trees and shrubs. You can join in. The number to call is 1-800-642-1234, 800-642-1234, or email to ideas at WPR.org, ideas at WPR.org. I know many of us have lost plants uh, due to uh, late frost. Are there plants that can tolerate, you know, those conditions? A little zappo? A little zap. Yeah, mums, definitely. The ones that we've already talked about are are pretty tough, Um, and especially when we're starting to look here to fall bloomers, late summer, early fall bloomers, late fall bloomers, they kind of have it built into their genetics that they'll tolerate a little bit of frost. One of the things that you have to remember when when plants get a bit of a frost is don't touch them when they have the frost on them. Hmm. Um, that, that ice, water, you know, anything that's on there, that little tiny bit of frost, if you touch that, you have now killed part of that leaf because the leaf itself will be insulated by that it has the capability to do that if it's a if it's a plant that will withstand a frost but as soon as you make that plant deal with that cold and that frost you're killing cells and so just leave it alone you know and i'm sure people have noticed if you've walked on your grass after a frost and then wait a couple of days. If it gets warm, you can see your footprints where some of the grass has died. It's the same principle. So just don't touch them and let it naturally just kind of disappear with the with the warmth and the sun, and usually they'll be okay. Andrew in Green Bay will give you a chance now. Hi, Andrew. Good, good morning. It's still morning. <laughs> uh, I've got an area of the yard that... In the spring, is soggy. There's never standing water there, but the soil is very soggy. And I want to turn it into a flower garden. What can I plant there that's a native plant that will survive, you know, basically being inundated with water in the spring and the rest of the year? It's pretty well drained. How many trees do you have around there? Um, there are two spruce trees about... 20 yards away, and the other direction, 
there's a number of box elder. How do the spruce look? Do they look pretty healthy? Yeah, they're they're healthy. They're about fifty feet tall. Okay, um, and anything else that's growing in that area? Um, in a high spot, just away from there, I've got another flower garden. I want to expand this one, expand that into this wet area. Gotcha. Um, there are plants that, and you want natives. Um, I would take a look at rain garden information and mm-hmm. see if. Those that are listed for it, where are you from? Where is the Green Bay? Green Bay, yeah. Oh, Green Bay Botanic Garden, wander over there, and I am sure that they have got a rain garden display. And I would take a look at the plants that are doing okay right now because more than likely they have had as dry as we have. I know, I know Green Bay areas had a little bit more rain yeah. here and there than, than we have in the southern part of the state. But you might want to wander over and take a look at what you like over in that area. Helenium that I talked about is a trooper with the water. And it doesn't look like it would be. It looks like it would be a heat and dry loving plant, but it actually tolerates getting inundated with water here and there throughout the season. Um, I would also dig down in that spot. Give yourself about a foot or 18 inches. Dig a bit of a hole. And see what happens in that, um, you know, to make sure that you don't have water that is going to fill that hole up. Because that's a different animal when you're talking about putting plants in there. Um, other things that do really fairly well if you give them a little bit of water here and there or have good underground base water, it's going to be, um, it, it's not a native, but... It is a grass, and it's Heikanakloa, Japanese forest grass. And again, not native, but it is a beautiful grass that will tolerate an awful lot of stuff. It loves bottom moisture, but it does not love crown moisture. So, um, and you know, I would also look at whether you want to raise that area up a little bit, but not until you observe what's going on underground, because that's going to really be key to what does and does not survive. Um, some of the heuchera will do well with with some underground moisture as long as their crowns are not horribly wet. Hellebores will do fine with that. They're really quite tolerant, and especially when you're talking about up by Green Bay, we don't have to worry so much about that intense afternoon sun that can take some of those plants out. Alliums also, um, if it's not standing water, they'll do okay. If it is standing water, then don't bother because the bulbs will rot. Um, Flocks also, Mm -hmm. those will do well with plenty of moisture underground. Uh, The series that I've been liking a lot lately when I see it out in trial gardens is the Luminary series. Do I have that right? Yes, Luminary series. And those have been coming up as really, really, really mildew resistant. And there's one called Coral Something that it is a spot of color that will catch your eye and it's a vibrant coral and it is just a pleasing, pleasing color. Mm. They also have a very, very deep and luminescent purple that is fantastic and their white goes beyond david as far as how good it is so um that one check into that series that that one will do well for you the only thing you have to watch out for with flocks are deer 
you know, yeah. but it's it's six of one, half a dozen the other. Is it disease or is it animals? Take your pick. Andrew, and, and uh, do take a look over at the Green Bay Botanical Garden mm-hmm. because you're going to... You're going to get uh, some really good information there on the plants. And, and then you get to see them all growing together. And Absolutely. Yeah. And you get the joy of being out in a garden. You know, I, and it's I a great really, garden. I really so. like the Green Bay Garden the Botanical. You know, there are so many wonderful trial gardens and botanic gardens out there that it's worth stopping. If you're going somewhere, I would check to see who's got trial gardens. You know, if you go over to Michigan... You can hit so many trial gardens and make your head spin at the universities, at botanic gardens, all over the place. So lots of lovely, lovely plants. And the beautiful thing about trial gardens is they trial them side by side. And not one plant, but you'll get six, eight, ten of them side by side so that you can see how they're performing en masse, not just one. And because anytime you might be able to get one plant that does really good, but if you're going to buy five, I want all five to do well. Yeah. And so that gives you a chance to look and see, oh, hey, I like the way this one is performing. Good luck, Andrew. Thank you very much for calling. Appreciate it. Liz Freemuth, our guest today, she provides concierge horticultural services through her business, The Garden Hole. I'm Larry Mueller for Garden Talk on the Ideas Network. Great to have you with us for this edition of Garden Talk. Larry Mueller here, uh, and our guest today is Liz Freemuth, uh, her business, The Garden Hole. And uh, we're answering all kinds of gardening questions, especially about flowers and some bushes and plants. And uh, I tell you what, I was looking at your uh, page. Liz has a a webpage. It's called the Garden Hole Gardenhoe.com. Mm-hmm. Thegardenhoe.com. Yep, because there is only one. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, you've got you've got a blog, you've got mm-hmm. videos, you've got a podcast, you've got and a lot of photos. Yeah, and most of the photos are mine. There's a couple that might be stock photos, but that's just me out and about and I've been on a bit of a break from podcasting and blogging, but that's going to pick up again this fall. And so there will be new content on there. But yeah, I I love sharing gardens with people and, and the fun. I am one of those that will tell you the answer to anything if you ask me. I might make it up, but I'll tell you the answer to anything. Nah, not really. I don't do that. There's a, there's enough truth in life. I don't need to make stuff up. Yeah. Um, but thanks. Yeah, I I enjoy doing that, and I've got a good team that that does it for it's a me. Nice, it's a nice site. Thegardenhole.com is a place to take a look. Carla in Fox Lake, Illinois. Let's go to you now. Hi, Carla. Hi. Um, I have a honeysuckle on a trellis. It's three or four years old, and it has never really been very good at blossoming. Hmm. Uh, there are very few blooms on it, uh, even throughout the warmer months. I'm wondering what I might do to help encourage uh, growth. What type of honeysuckle is it? Do you know the name? No, I don't know. Okay. If you're not, uh, sun or shade, what do you have it planted in? Yeah. What uh, side of the house? Sun, uh, it's on the south side, uh, some trees in the front, but on about six hours a day. Mm. Does it get decent airflow? 
it's up against the house. Mm. So I'm are, not so sure. Are you seeing any frosting on the leaves? Uh, no. Powdery mildew. Um, the reason why... Oh, I, oh, oh the, I, I see. Yeah, the reason why I ask that is, depending on when it hits, that can actually impede blossoming. Uh, my suggestion would be to check around the roots. You might, you know, if it's been in three or four years and it's not making you happy, uh, has it has it climbed quite a bit or is it still fairly short? It, no, it's doing well with climbing. Okay. Hmm. Um, do you have a tag for it or not? It's long gone. Oh, long gone. Long gone. Was it purchased or was it a gimme from a friend? Uh, purchased. Okay. Uh, and you know where you got it from? Mm-hmm. I do. I would take a picture of it and take it back to the place that you bought it and tell them what kind of a problem you're having and see if that has come up and maybe see if they can help you identify which one it is. For the most part, honeysuckles will blossom just fine, but sometimes they may need a pal to help to help that pollinating a little bit with the blooms developing. It doesn't seem to be the case with most of them, but you never know, and it would give you a reason to buy another one. Otherwise, what I would suggest is pruning it back um, have you done that at all while it's been growing? I, I have the first couple of years. I pruned it to about 6 to 12 inches from the ground. Oh, yeah, you don't want to do that. Um, I'll, I'll tell you that sometimes you can cut the blossoms off when you do that. So I would say thin it out a little bit. And when I say prune it, I mean kind of prune some of the side branches, the dead stuff out of there, thin it out a little bit. But for the most part, you can just let them go and they will do just fine. So it may be that you kind of kicked it back a little bit. But the beautiful part about what you did is that it's developing really great roots. And so whatever is going to happen from here on out, you probably have got a very, very strong plant underneath. And that's what it needs to develop that upper growth. So there's always a silver lining on this stuff. My suggestion would be then to prune out the dead stuff, make sure that you've got some decent-ish airflow. When it's against the house, it's a little hard to do. But if there is a way that you can increase the sun that hits those, that's going to help the flowering as well because those are a little bit funny. The climbers are a little bit funny as to how much sun they get during the day. So if you can improve that sunlight a little bit, that would be great. If not, I would say be a bit patient, give it another year, and let's see what happens. The other is I know that honeysuckles at clients' places this year have done very, very well, but powdery mildew has been an issue. So um, there are going to be some things that happen. And if you don't get flowers on that this next year, uh, then I would say replace it, get a different one, put them side by side. And if it continues to not flower well, take it out and let the new one flourish. Because there are beautiful, beautiful honeysuckles out there that are not going to spread. So before we get people calling in and saying, don't plant honeysuckles, they're invasive, they are breeding for decent control on how invasive they are. So if you've got a good cultivated plant, then you, that should not be an issue at all. Um, but I would, I would give it a dose of fertilizer also. Do that late in the season and do a slow-release fertilizer for blooming plants. And again, you want it late in the season because you want it to be in the ground 
and working its magic in the soil and then ready to be taken up by the plant early in spring. So that's why you put it down later in the fall. So after all the leaves have fallen off, so after we've hit real fall, then you go ahead and apply fertilizer around that and see if that gives it a, you know, I, th- I think you're on the right track. Mm-hmm. You can, And sometimes we can love our plants a little too much. Mm-hmm. And so we just got to dial it back a bit. Carla, good luck. Thank you for calling. Uh, Randy in Cedarburg, your turn. Hi, Randy. Oh, hi. How you doing? Good. Appreciate the call. Um, oh, I appreciate you taking it. Here's here's the situation I have. I have some abrovitis that I put in uh, this spring, say like in March, uh, towards the end of March, early April. I planted a, a string of them, 25 of them, and they did beautifully for uh, for a couple of months, kept watering them every day. Uh, they've grown oh, maybe uh, 18 inches, mm. but they're yellowing. Mm-hmm. And, and and I'm lost there. Uh, uh, not all of them, but, but there are some that are yellowing, and, and they got a lot of yellow in them. Mm-hmm. Are you, um, first off, what I would suggest is anytime you've got discoloration and you're not sure why, I mean, granted, this year has been very, very tough, but you've been watering, and sometimes watering every day can can go you know, a little too far for them if they're fast growing, that might take a little bit of oomph out of them. And when they're freshly planted, you don't really want to stick the fertilizer on them just yet. So I would say again, like I mentioned with the last caller, that do a end of the season, you know, nice slow release and and you should be fine, but you can probably wait until next year. What I would do is I would send a sample up to Brian at the plant pathology lab to make sure that you don't have anything going on that we can't detect by just talking about it. And especially if it's across the board on all of them, if if it started in one spot and spread, then I worry about pathogens or insects. Mm-hmm. But if it's across the board on all of them, then that comes down more to cultural and environmental. So that comes down to what am I doing to it and what is nature doing to it? And so it, it takes a little bit of a, you know, get a lawn chair out there, get a beverage of choice, mm-hmm. sit down on a nice cool evening and just really look at where you're seeing the issues and if it appears as though it's got one starting point and spreading. But the first step would be to send something up to Brian so that um, he can tell you whether you've got anything going on. And oftentimes at this time of the year, evergreens included, we have needles that will drop. So, you know, don't worry tremendously about it if they're if they're starting to just get lighter green. If they are truly yellow going into brown, then I would be concerned. And you may want to dig around in the roots, make sure everything looks good there too. Randy, good luck. And it's the Plant Disease Diagnostic and, Clinic is the and if you go to that site, there's directions and all right. That. And Brian's so good about turning things around. So Very you'll get, quickly. Yeah, you'll get, and, and he's phenomenal. You may even be able to send him a picture, and he can give you an idea of what it is that he would need, if anything, from the picture that you sent. Good luck, Randy. Aaron in Madison, your turn. Hi, Aaron. Yes, I actually have a, uh, a black oak tree. I've been told it's maybe 70 or 80 years old, and mm. I... Uh, a while back, I had uh, another tree fall and t- break a branch off on it. And since then, uh, this is about eight years ago or so, but the, the branch died off. 
And then now the now the branch fell off, but there's another one next to it that looks like it might be uh might be dying as well. But mm-hmm. another lower branch, it's not the top top, but so I'm just trying to figure out, you know, I'm worried about oak wilt, but I mm-hmm. I don't know if it is none of the rest of the tree really looks like it's it's you know, there's there's harm to it. But uh yeah, so I curious about that and then I have uh, now this this year like, it seems like it happens every four or five years I get the trees like a little factory right now and there's, like there's chipmunks and squirrels climbing up and down this thing and I've been seeing a lot of squirrels just like almost twist the end of the branches off and they're like dropping them down mm-hmm. it's almost littered my whole backyard yeah they nip those little twigs off yep it's fall they're yeah. getting they're getting ready for winter, so that's why you're seeing the activity, and the populations must be high that it's that it's much more noticeable to you this year. What I would say about the branch on your oak tree is this is a time, especially if it's a tree that's got some age, beauty, and you want to keep that tree. This is a time. Don't have a certified arborist on call then you need to start developing a relationship with one. So start digging around. There's Wisconsin Arborist Association. There's national associations also, but start with Wisconsin. There are fabulous certified arborists out there who can come out and give you a good idea of whether that branch got hit while the other one was damaged, you know, you you may yeah. not see that. It might be a slow death on that one branch, and it might be something as simple as that. But if it does have another issue, finding out sooner rather than later is a good way to deal with it. So start, start with Wisconsin Arborist Association and get yourself a good arborist, develop a relationship. It's like finding a doctor. You know, you you want somebody that you have a good rapport with, so you may have to interview a few companies, few um, providers before you find somebody, so don't get discouraged by that. Um, but really get out there and, and get somebody who can get up there and take a look at that tree. If it's 70 feet tall, yes, should not be climbing up in it with sharp implements. Let somebody do it who has got the equipment to do it safely. Yeah, uh, uh, absolutely. Aaron, uh, good luck with and Aaron's yeah. in Madison, so oh, t- beautiful, some beautiful really arborists. good arborists yep. Uh, yep. in in Madison for sure. So uh, just uh, take a look at the Wisconsin Arborists Association, and you'll see a big listing of uh, certified arborists. Yep. And that's a good time to talk to your neighbors, too, especially if you yeah. get along well with your neighbors. Say, hey, have you worked with anybody? That's always good. It's good yeah. for neighbor relations. Good for neighbor relations. Aaron, thank you so much for calling. Liz Freemuth, our guest today. Liz provides concierge horticultural services through her business across the country, as a matter of fact. Uh, the business is called The Garden Hoe. The on-site address is thegardenhoe.com. I'm Larry Mueller for Garden Talk on the Ideas Network of Wisconsin Public Radio. Listening to Garden Talk on the Ideas Network. Larry Mueller here with my guest Liz Freemuth. She provides concierge horticultural services through her business, 
the garden hoe. So join in with your questions. You can email us to ideas at WPR.org or give a call to 1-800-642-1234. And lots of callers online. Let's go to Dean in Northeast Iowa next. Hi, Dean. Hey, good good afternoon, Larry. Um, Great show. Uh, I've got a sort of a problem, you might say. I have... um, we have a nice uh, perennial bed uh, with a stone wall in front of it, and what's happening is I'm getting a lot of seeds starting, uh, coneflower, uh, black-eyed Susan, uh, phlox, um, others. Uh, but one of the other ones is the uh, butterfly bush, mm-hmm. um, kind of a woody. Yep. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, I have, I don't, I don't know, There's. there's got to be, a dozen of those plants and they're all growing in gravel right below the wall mm. and you know which is fine except uh i'd like to move some of those plants particularly the uh, butterfly bush um how, how how do i go about doing it they're probably a foot and a half to, to maybe too tall mm-hmm. uh most of them all have blooms on right now and you want to um, bo- and you want to move them now well, I, you know, they're in the gravel of my driveway, so. Oh, I see. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> Not an optimal location for you, right? Um, you can do it now. I would I preface that with, you know, I'm going to back it up. Um, check to see what the temps are going to be over the next couple of weeks. You do want to move them in September at the latest really end of September, because otherwise they don't have enough time to actually set down roots in order to survive through the winter. And if you get um, heaving from freeze-thaw, freeze-thaw, which we always get in the Midwest um, when we're in winter, and especially the early and late parts of it. So just really scoop that gravel aside, and it's going to be tough to dig the roots out if it's all gravel. Uh, if it's gravel, 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 and you say it's in the driveway, you know, that can be a Compacted. Yeah, it can be a little tough to get those out without without really destroying the integrity of the driveway. So, you know, really if if I had to choose and you're digging into the driveway, the gravel of a driveway to get a plant out, I would probably say it might not be worth wrecking your driveway cost wise to get a free plant. Um, but but that I would leave up to your discretion because I don't know what the dry what kind of gravel and what kind of driveway you're looking at, but you are going to have to loosen that up because as Larry said it's going to be compacted um, and so you need to loosen that up in order to tease those roots out of there. But you should just go ahead and try it if that's something you decide to do. Give it a whirl. Make sure the temperatures are not up in the hundreds two days after you do it. And you should be fine. And get them into the ground, get them really firmly in there. And then when the ground freezes solid, as I had talked about earlier in the show, get some mulch on that so that if the roots are not fully entrenched in the soil and really, really there for the entire winter, you want to provide some protection that is going to moderate the temperature of that soil so if we get a warm-up, it doesn't heave out of the ground. That's where we get a lot of loss over winter when we do fall planting is 
you doing plants that are not going to root out as fast as what we need them to do. So just that's just a you know put a little reminder on your calendar um, every couple of weeks. Do I need to mulch my new plants? That's you know that's about it. But when the ground freezes solid, and the reason for that is that you don't want to give the mice and the other rodents a place to hide over winter and then feed on your plants. So what I refer to as bed and breakfast for for the rodents. So that's why freeze solid. Then those rodents have kind of found a home. It's not like it's going to preclude all of them over winter from finding it, but you'll you'll eliminate most of them. Good luck, Dean. Thank you for calling. Uh, Carol in Green Bay, it's your turn. Hi, Carol. Hi there. I have a plant. It's a perennial. I've had it in my garden for about three years, and it's always done well. It's called a painter's palette. And it, it this year it's growing nicely but as it grows it develops little holes in all of the leaves mm, i don't know i don't know the common name painter's palette what is what type of a flower is that plant there well there really isn't much of a flower it has a a leaf that's kind of creamy green and green colored and then in fall now it shoots up a real skinny stem with an itty bitty flower on the end of it. Um, do you have a scientific name for that, or even a family that it's in? Oh boy, no, I don't remember the scientific name. Mm. Um, okay, so the structure on the plant and and the holes on it are they really tiny? And are the holes on the stems or just the leaves? Just the leaves, and they aren't real tiny. I'm looking at it now and. They aren't real tiny, um, and it, it does not affect the stem. And it doesn't. there's no problem with the other plants surrounding it, just that particular one. I moved a section of it to another part of my garden. Same thing happened. It was fine, and then all of a sudden these little holes started to appear again. Okay, so... Tavara, Virginia. I'm sorry, what? Tavara, Virginia. Is it a tropical, or is it um, It's a perennial that comes back every year? comes back nicely every year yeah i'm not we're not finding anything on that one um as far as a scientific name so let's just talk in general then because i'm much better with scientific names than i am with common names so let's talk in general about what could potentially be causing this and there's obviously a bug that is chewing on your leaves on your plant etc and if you've moved it from one place to the other, it likes that plant. And if it's not, are you seeing, let me ask you this, are you seeing a reduction in the vigor of the plant year to year? Or does it look pretty good except that it just has holes on it? Oh, it still looks good. It still keeps growing, but it starts at the bottom leaves and then kind of moves up toward the top. I talked to a local um nursery and he thought maybe there was something in the ground on the roots but like i said i didn't have a problem with this any other year yeah um it larry found it it's persicaria and excuse me doesn't surprise me that there are insects that are chewing on it i'm not sure that it would be coming out of the ground i think that when you know whenever i have seen persicaria that has damage on the leaves you're really looking at particular insects that love that plant and um, the only and it might be that you've got a decent population of this insect right now and um, I don't know that I would worry about it tremendously is it unsightly I mean to the point where you look at it and cringe no it's because like I said it's 
starts at the bottom, the top part looks pretty good. Right. Um, I don't know that I would worry about it tremendously, quite honestly. If you are concerned about it and you want to see if you can prevent that damage next year, you might actually look at doing a systemic around that plant in particular. And there's a number of great products you can get, local garden center, et cetera, that are, that are systemic insecticides that you put in the ground, you water them into the ground around the plant, the plant uptakes that, and it makes it unpalatable for the insects to chew. So your homework then is to think about, you know, do you, does it bother you enough that you would want to do that, number one, because it is a chemical. And some people just do not want to use chemical controls for anything. So you have to ask yourself, do I want to do that? And then um, how much effort do you want to put into it? You could use a product and apply it repeatedly throughout the year or use a systemic that you can just apply once. Um, and it, is it near food? So you have to ask, you know, are you planting this near anything that is going to be under production for you to consume? If you are, then you need to check to make sure that whatever product you choose to use is not going to impact your health or your product. So you look at pre-harvest interval, things like that. And if it has a pre-harvest interval of a year, you never put it by food. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And that might just take care of the issue for you. It might break the insect cycle, and it might actually just go away on its own. So um, you need to notice when that insect is, when the damage is occurring, because most of those products are going to have an effective period, you know, whatever that is, 60, 90, 120 days. So you want to make sure that you're not putting that product down before the insect is actually there, or you're not going to do any good. Um, and so those are just things to consider. And, you know, if it's not unsightly, again, the the appearance of holes in the leaves, while not a happy moment for a gardener, don't necessarily mean the death of a plant. <clears throat> I noticed, uh, and thanks for calling, Carol, I, mm -hmm. I noticed the wide variety of plants that uh -huh. can be called painter's palette. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I guess really, as I was just kind of doing a quick search online, my goodness. Alan Manitowoc, and that's why, of course, we need the, the scientific. Even if it's just the family that it's in, yeah. because you can you can garner a lot of information and kind of distill it out to, you know, maybe this will work if you have the family that it's in. Alan Manitowoc, your turn. Hi, Al. All right, thanks, Larry. My question for your guests is I have... Uh, Six uh, hydrangea plants that are the low-growing kind, the ones that don't get more than about three feet off the ground. I planted them about eight years ago. They flowered for about the first three years, and, and lately, the last five years, no flowers. And I don't know what what happened to them. Are you... They still grow. Or, oh, me? Go ahead. I, when are you pruning them? Uh, I, I let them uh, over winter, and then I cut them down in the spring. Okay, depending on which type they are, you might actually be cutting off the flower buds. And without knowing exactly which one it is, even on, and we're talking about the round ball ones, correct? Yes. Okay. You may actually be cutting off the flower buds. My suggestion, and, and if you don't have a tag or you don't remember which kind they are, that makes it more difficult for you to figure out, hmm, when do I prune these? You know, because a lot of times we'll move into houses and the shrubs are already there. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So what I would suggest is this year 
don't cut them off. And when spring starts rolling around, it's going to take a couple of years to actually rebound. And one of the reasons is that they can be terminal. Some of the round ball ones are terminal bloomers, meaning that they will bloom on the end of that stem. And if you cut that stem off, then what happens is they spur a secondary bloom that are ready to go, and that's in year one and two. Now, after you get past year one, two, and three, you don't have any more secondary blooms to pop up when you cut that, that terminal off from the main bloom. So it may take you a couple of years to actually get those to come back and bloom. Hopefully, if you don't touch them, this fall, then when spring comes around, you'll actually be able to see what's dead and what isn't. It takes a little bit more work or they may be a little bit messier this year while you figure out what to do with it. But as those, as they green up in the spring, then just take a look at what's dead. Take that off and don't take off any of those ends that look like they have green on them. And that way you'll be able to figure out, okay, do I have a terminal bloomer or do I not? Mm -hmm. And if you have a terminal bloomer, then you don't want to cut those off in before they bloom in the spring. So not over winter. There you go, Al. Thank you so much for calling. Uh, Jennifer in Lake Geneva, your turn. Hi, Jennifer. Hello. Hi. What can we do for you? Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Um, we have a new tree that we planted last spring, um, and I cannot remember the scientific name of it. Unfortunately, um, it is a conifer. Um, it's the it's some kind of I don't know if it's a cypress, um, some type of Alaskan cypress or something like that. It's the type of um, tree where the branches gracefully fall down. Yeah. Um, they grow downward. Um, anyway, uh, we planted it. It did great uh, for the first half of the summer, and then we noticed that the top of it was turning brown. Uh, my husband looked at it closely, and he thinks maybe the bark is split. Mm. So we don't know. Um, you know, we thought about taping the bark. Uh, we weren't sure quite how to handle it. Mm. Uh, we have left it alone. Um, now the top of it is completely copper brown. Mm. We don't know if we should take the top off uh, to try to save the rest of the tree, or my husband thinks maybe it might just regenerate in the spring. Oftentimes with those, I don't know that you're going to get a regeneration on the main leader, but you may actually be able to get a decent-looking tree out of it over time. How tall of a tree are we talking about? I would say right now it's probably about five and a half feet or so. Okay, and uh, when you're talking about the top is brown, um, does the top also arch or is it upright? It's upright right now. I don't know if it'll eventually arch or not. And yeah. it, and it's the the split in the uh, bark is like halfway up the tree, so it's just so oh, bad. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, if it's a split that high up, you're probably going to see much of the rest of the tree die back. Um, and when did you plant that? This, this last spring. Okay. Um, and did you get it from a garden center? Yeah, we did. Yeah, we didn't get it from a grower, unfortunately. Okay, well, it, but garden centers often will have a year guarantee on the perennial plants, including trees and shrubs. So I would say talk to the garden center that you bought it from and see if they if they do have, you, you'd have to have your receipt. So 
that's one of the things that, you know, if you bought it with a credit card or whatever, print that, print it out that lists out what it was that you purchased where, and if you don't have the receipt for it, and talk to them and see if they would replace it. Because that, to me, sounds like, I mean, you can tape it, and oftentimes those, again, plants surprise me all the time. It may actually go together and it will regenerate, but you are going to have some loss on there. You mm -hmm. can't have split bark without having some detriments to the tissue that's growing. So I would say talk to the garden center that you bought it from, ask them what their replacement policy is, and see if you can't get a different tree in there. Um, without that, what I would do on the top where you're seeing brown is I would do a scratch test to make sure you don't have life in it. Um, and that's really just use your fingernail scratch and see what you've got underneath for tissue. If the bark does not come up at all when you scratch it lightly with your fingernail, more than likely it's a dead and there isn't any live tissue in there. So that's, that's one way you can kind of tell what is going to happen up top. Jennifer, good luck with that. Thank yeah. you for uh, calling. Appreciate it. Alicia in Spring Green, your turn. Hi. Hi. Every year I plant um, a mixture of annuals and usually like uh, marigolds and um, nasturtiums and balloon flower and things like that. I get a bunch of different mixes and mix them together and put them in, you mix them in dirt. And I plant them it by my mailbox around. I have um, cement blocks with the holes up. And so then I just, you know, put the dirt in there and, and keep it watered until stuff comes up. Well, this year, all of a sudden, I have, I identified it. There's a whole bunch of beefsteak plant, Perilla frutescens, and they're huge. Hmm. And they're like, you know, I was expecting, I, you know, kind of medium-sized plants because mm -hmm. I want the blossoms you know the marigolds i always have marigolds and nasturtiums the kind of orange stuff and this thing these these things are huge i mm. wonder why mm. they would put that in a mix what did they put it in a mix or did it come just because you said prunella right perilla perilla gotcha um yeah. that may have actually just kind of ended up unintentionally in the mix yeah you know because because that would never that it's, would not be it had, no and it doesn't survive i mean seed could potentially survive especially if you're talking about um you're talking about cement block where you've got the heat that is going to actually last all the way through winter you might actually have seeds that are going to stay viable enough but then that's going to be it came in on something and really, that's all I can tell you is it came in on something. Because if you didn't plant it, it got there somehow. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, if you do the nasturtium and the, and the marigolds by seed, could very well have been that an errant seed got into that mix also. It is so hard to say why. Um, if you enjoyed it, why not, right? Or did it obliterate your marigolds and your nasturtiums? Too big. <laughs> yeah, too big. It obliterated. <laughs> well, um, Perilla, you can actually cut back. That's, that is, if it happens to you in the future, you can actually cut that back and it will get a little bit bushier rather than be tall. And you can just continue to do that throughout the season. And it can, it can be kind of your, you know, quote unquote, baby's breath in the arrangement if the color is acceptable, if that happens to you again. There you go, Alicia. Thank you so much uh, for calling. Appreciate your call. 
And here we are, Liz, about out of you, and you're yeah. a busy gal right now, I'm yeah. expecting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I saw yeah. some pictures. <laughs> I saw some photos of some of the work you're doing at a very large home. Oh, my my goodness. But it's always fun, isn't it? It is. It is. You know, I, I, I consider myself extremely fortunate that I get to play with plants. So anytime I'm out, even if it's 100 degrees, I'm having fun. I may not like it, but I'm having fun. <laughs> well, you'll come back and be with us again, I hope. I will. Actually, I think I'm coming to do the gift the, oh, in December. I in believe December. I'm I believe I'm doing gifts for gardeners in December. That sounds perfect. It'll but, be fun. In the meantime, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Great callers as always. Liz Freemuth, our guest today, she provides concierge horticultural services through her business, The Garden Hole. And if you want to see her blog and the videos and everything else she's got on her site, just go to uh, thegardenhole.com, thegardenhole.com. And, of course, we have shows coming up every day. It feels like every day, and it is every weekday at least, and Saturday mornings at 6 for Garden Talk. But Monday at this time at 11 o'clock, we'll be talking about smiling and how it affects social situations and how smiling varies across, uh, depending on the country you're uh, in. And then we'll turn our attention to frowning kind of anger and talk about why we seem to be angry as a country. Uh, That's Monday starting at 11 right here on the Ideas Network of Wisconsin Public Radio. And I want to thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a great weekend. But stay with us because there's lots more in store on the Ideas Network. I'm Larry Mueller. (music) 